police in the morning. Welcome, B-Movie fans, to this week's episode of B-Movie Chat. This week, we will be discussing the discussing movies that are so bad that they're good. Normally, when you watch a bad movie, it's an overall unpleasant experience. Some bad movies have a few good qualities, but that are overshadowed by all the bad qualities. Other bad films have no good qualities at all and completely fail to entertain their intended audience. However, there is a third type of bad movie. These bad films manage to be, to be so poorly written, so incompetently su- structured, and contain such terrible acting that they somehow manage to be entertaining. These magical films somehow defy reality and become enjoyable, not despite their failures, but because of them. These so-bad-they're-good films spawn thousands of dedicated followers who will go out of their way to see these atrocities over and over again. This phenomenon, like how they were made in the first place, leaves viewers with many questions. What qualities make up a film that's so bad bad they're good? What similarities do these films have? What kind of people can make these kind of films? And can a film that is so bad it's good be made on purpose? Also, why do people like these films so much? Joining us for this chat, we welcome back Fuzzy Michael of Cinemania. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Oh, glad to have you back. I'm excited. This is going to be a good one because there's th- this is really sort of the core of what it's all about, those so bad it's good movies. I mean, this is what gets people into B-movies in the first place, what gets people into cult flicks, now, are sort I, of the movies that, that whiff on the big audiences, but they find their audience eventually. Definitely. I think we should really start with the elephant in the room here and talk about Troll 2 and just get it out of the way. Just real <laughs> It's quick. right in the center of my notes. I was just looking at that. <laughs> yeah. That's um yeah that's when you didn't really like it all Corey like you didn't even um, find that I, so bad yeah I don't I don't think that movie is so bad that it's good are there a couple memorable things in it yes but I I overall think it's a bad movie just just plain bad oh, I love that film I think it's hilarious just um the fact that somebody wrote the idea that they would defeat the um villains with what was it a ham sandwich or something like that it was just beautiful and just nothing makes sense but you can tell they thought they were making a good film i guess you you could see there's passion in it um but just i think like everything that could go wrong except actually filming it did go wrong and although some things work in the favor for the movie and some of the lines are just phenomenally bad that they're hilarious overall i don't find it a pleasurable watch yeah i mean to me personally i it's one of those that you hear about from a friend. It's not one that you discover, you know, in a traditional sense. No one's advertising Troll 2. It's just one of those ones that comes to you word of mouth. So you might build it up in your head before you see it, like, oh, this is going to be so bad, it's good. And then you watch it, and you're like, wow, it's so bad, it's bad. I don't know that... I, I watched Troll 2 once. I don't know that I'll ever watch it again. Um, it's just one of those ones that you have to get through because it's sort of... It's obligatory. It's like Mono's The Hands of Fate or Plan 9 from Outer Space. It's so well known for being awful that you just have to watch it once get it out of the way so when people bring it up you can go yeah i saw that it's like a rite of passion with like b movies well see like my my brother brought home a copy of troll 2 when i was like 12 or 13 years old so i mean the first time i saw it was then and i i think i remember kind of enjoying it but i think like the second watch of it you know 15 years later kind of just was like yeah it's it's not that good. I enjoyed that one. I I think that the badness of it that is 
that is really funny just it takes up most of the film like there really aren't it doesn't really give you a break to be like all right like this isn't that good but i thought it kept going throughout the most of the film so i enjoyed it not not one of my favorites it's so bad it's good films but i i definitely think it deserves its place though i will say i think most people that think it's the worst movie ever haven't seen that many bad movies so it's um that's kind of like the um it's kind of like Plan 9 from Outer Space, which is a legit bad movie, but not by any means the worst. So it just kind of happened to be, ha- happened to fall into, um, like, popular um, notion. Yeah. Well, that, that's always the struggle with, like, what is the worst movie ever made? Because, I mean, if you're going to know about it, if it's going to be notorious enough for you to hear about it, then it's probably not that bad. Because a movie's so, so bad that you wouldn't even tell another person you saw it is going to be the worst movie ever. Not something like Plan 9 where it's so bad it's kind of silly and campy and you'll show it to somebody because you just want to see their reaction or whatever. Like That, you know, is, is its own level, but it's not necessarily the worst thing ever. I mean, I, I thought personally that the first Samurai Cop movie was the worst movie I've seen in a very long time just because it's sort of boring and nothing happens in it. doesn't deliver on its premise. And it's like, those are bigger issues. If I'm going to like fall asleep during your movie, that's a bad movie. Oh, yeah. um, more so than something like Plan 9 from Outer Space or Troll 2 or, you know, where you're at least going to be engaged and watch the whole thing. Yeah, at least something happens in those films. Like, it's really yeah. hard to say, like, what a bad film is because there are plenty of films where they fail on certain levels, but then there's, like you said, there's some that are just so unpleasant to watch that you just, like, you're almost angry after it's over because it's like, wow, I really just wasted my time on this. Yeah, like, uh, the worst crime that a, a movie can commit is really just being boring. Like, if it, at least if it's got, you know, good uh, good music, good construction, it's got some, you know, some pace and some speed, and you feel like you can get through it, and maybe it's just brisk, like, maybe it's only 75 minutes instead of two hours and 20 minutes. That can make a big difference, because, I mean, there are some bad movies that are so short that it's like you don't feel like you, especially the older ones, uh, back in the day, a lot of the movies were only 65 or 70 minutes. So these older bad movies aren't that bad to get through. Like uh, they're no worse than watching an episode of Game of Thrones at that point. So even if it's sort of weak, you're not, you know, you don't feel like you wasted a good portion of your day. But if it's a two and a half hour long bad movie, then you're more likely to just be like checking your watch. You know, do I really want to sit through this? And and the other uh, sort of facet of, of how bad a movie feels is what situation you're in. Like seeing a bad movie in the movie theater, I think makes the movie way worse than seeing a bad movie at home. Because in the movie theater, you feel like, uh, especially if it's sort of a busy theater packed, or you're with somebody, you feel obligated to stay. Like, you almost feel trapped. Like, I can't get up and make everyone move their feet for me to get out of the aisle to escape this bad movie. So now I just have to sit here and suffer through it till it's over. Whereas if you're at home and a movie's that bad, you just turn it off or you move to something else. Or maybe you can distract yourself with something else. Or you can have friends over, drinking games, whatever. And you can make a bad movie good. So really, the, the environment you're in can have a big impact on how bad you think a movie is. Well, and I also think a uh, uh, an impact on that is how much did you pay to see this movie? Because I know yeah. if if I go to a movie theater and I paid you know seven fifty or ten fifty or thirteen fifty to see this movie, by God, I am going to stay for the whole movie. Yeah, you pretty much have to at that point because otherwise um, you have to admit that you wait you threw this money away. It's like I know a, a couple years ago, my wife and I went and saw Maleficent and Blended at the drive-in as a double feature. And um, Blended started, and like within the first five minutes, I was like, if this continues, I'm going to fucking kill somebody. 
I was like, we can we can stay until the ten minute mark, and if it doesn't get any better, we're leaving. Because you know what, you know, the driving was only six fifty a person for two movies. I was like, we saw one movie. I'm okay with not seeing this one. Uh, but like, actually, it turned itself around and was a lot better from that point. But it was like, you know, that monetary value. Okay, well, I already got more value from this than if I go to a, sit in a movie theater, and you know, paid a lot more money for one ticket for you know, one movie. Yeah. It's also the fact that you went out of your way to see it. It's like, not like, oh, I downloaded a movie or, you know, I just happened to find this at a red box or something like that. It's no, I drove here with the intent of seeing this movie and now it's terrible. It's just, I don't know. I can barely justify going to the movies anymore. Yeah, like I, I had a real... I had prided myself for, I think, 17 years on not walking out of a movie. In 1999, I walked out of two movies that year. And then I didn't walk out of another one until just a couple weeks ago. And I was so proud of myself for going about 17 years without walking out of a movie. Uh, because I, if I do get myself to the theater, like you said, like that's a commitment. Like I'm already there. I'm in it. My theater, luckily, is a VIP theater. Nice comfy seats. Serves alcohol. So I, it doesn't matter to me. I can make almost any movie good under those circumstances. Nice comfy leather recliner. As much booze as I can handle. Like I'm going to make this movie good. So if a movie is that bad, I can't sit through it in that in that scenario, then it's like uh, something's wrong. So I was really happy that I went that long without walking out of one. Then I went in to see Triple X, The Return of Xander Cage, and it just <laughs> I couldn't do it. That just looked terrible from like everything I saw. I have to say, Triple X is probably one of the worst movies I ever saw in theaters, um, just because of the predictability. Like, like nothing happened in that movie that like you could not like call thirty minutes ahead of time. And f- for having, like, Samuel L. Jackson and Vin Diesel, like, you know, some sc- stars of a certain quality, like, the acting was was atrocious, even from them, like, and I was just like, I, I couldn't stand it. Um, now, m- might I ask, what did you walk out of in, of in 1999? This would be kind of embarrassing, because some of these movies people actually like, and I probably now would be able to get through them, but at the time... I was 16, 17 years old, and so at the time, it was like I had an attitude, and I just didn't like it. I wanted to walk out. So I walked out of whatever James Bond movie came out that year, and I don't remember which one it was, but it was my first ever in-theater James Bond experience, and it was the one where they were um, they were trying to make James Bond more like progressive and nicer towards women, and he wasn't going to be like a sexual carouser or whatever. It was that one, and I just it just didn't win me over. The movie was just sort of awful, and James Bond movies in general are hit and miss. Sometimes they're at least so campy and over the top that you can enjoy them. And sometimes they're just, they just fall flat. And this one just fell flat. And I made it, I don't even know, maybe an hour in. I knew I had like an hour and 15 minutes left. And I had walked out. And the other one was Mystery Men, which a lot of people <laughs> like. And I feel bad for walking out of that now because I like most of the people in it. But for whatever reason, I just couldn't take it that day. That day I was just like, I'm over this. And I just had to get out of that theater. Yeah, that was a movie that was really disappointing because it's got a great idea and premise and like you said, the people in it are good, but it kind of doesn't work for what you think it's going to do and I don't know, I didn't like it very much either. Granted, yeah. it's been like a long... I, yeah, I think I saw that one in theaters and that was the only time I ever saw it. So. Now, speaking of James Bond, that brings up a really great point in some movies that are so bad that they're good and that's the villain. When you have these villains that are just overly ridiculous, even like if it's a realistic premise, like 
some of the James Bond movies are kind of sort of maybe construed as realistic. And then you've got villains like Jaws, who's got the, the metal the metal teeth and odd job, the, the, the short guy with the, the razor-rimmed bowler hat that kills people by throwing his hat. like Takes people's head off with his hat. Like. I mean... You've just got like the just this little detail of like why is that even present in this movie? Like Rocky Four and the robot. Like that robot's amazing. <laughs> don't don't be knocking the robot from Rocky Four. But you know you just you have these you know characters, this outrageous character that just takes it to the next level of craziness and brings that kind of like uh, to me it's like a joy of like this differential between what should be and what's actually there. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that helps a movie be so bad that it's good is if the plot is serious and they have this thing that's completely ridiculous and you can tell that the creators didn't quite realize how ridiculous and how much it clashed because a lot of times when you watch a movie it's so bad it's good, it's a really standard kind of plot for the most part, but they've got things in it that are just so ridiculous you can't help but laugh. Like, um... Just like you said, with the um, like odd job and all those other um, villains, just like what is what's even going on? Well, t- take a look at Bubba Hotep with Bruce Campbell as an aging Elvis in a retirement home in Texas. That in and of itself, just the premise, like okay, that sounds horrible, you know. And then you know he's fighting a mummy that spoiler alert sucks the souls of old people out through their assholes. Of course. I mean, where else, how else would you suck? With that? an aging black JFK. What? Whose brain is being kept in a jar by the CIA. Which is all true. It's, it's on a document somewhere. And it's just, it's so ridiculous. And, you know, it's Bruce Campbell. I mean, it, it's as hammy as hammy can get. I mean, I can smell the bacon when I'm watching the movie. And it's just so overacted and so dramatic in a comedic sense, that it's it's bad, but it just it makes me smile, it makes me laugh. It's it, it is a comedy, but just how the actors do it and how everything is set and just the premise of it. You know, the the mummy is wearing fucking cowboy boots and a cowboy hat at one point. I mean, how can that not be bad? Well, that's one of those films that kind of does it on purpose. So it kind of um, basically makes a comedy like. I'm not sure if it would be considered so good it's bad just because it's intentionally trying to be. Yeah, it's like they're trying to, when they know better, like they know they're making sort of a B-movie, I always do sort of wonder whether or not I should include it in that in that realm. Because like if it's accidental, you're more likely to say, well, this is bad. But if they're purposely trying to make a, a movie that's sort of campy, like I always wonder with, um, with the Rocky Horror Picture Show, like they knew what they were making while they were making it. Like they knew that this movie was going to be something that seemed funny to people and made people giggle and laugh, but there's not a joke in the whole movie. Like, they're not actually trying to be funny, but they're trying to be absurd, very much like Bubba Hotep. So it's like when you're purposely making an absurd movie, it's like, can you really call it bad? Because they sort of succeeded in every level of doing what they wanted to do. It's just what they wanted to do sort of goes against the mainstream. It's sort of counterculture. Exactly. There's like a difference between absurdity and just bad writing and bad, bad, um, construction of a film like um i think in order for a film to be so bad it's good there has to be like a disconnect from reality with the creators like um you look at like a tommy was so who just lacks the ability to understand people and just makes this god-awful film that's um just 
so disconnected from how like a film is supposed to be made or how we've come to know films and it's just ridiculous like you can tell he doesn't really understand like like proper um sentence structure and how people communicate and what actually is funny it's like hey, look at this this is a thing that's going on it's like well okay like, this is art yeah it's like look a football okay well what's the point of the football it's a football it's like i think that it it all like really stems from the creator and just having such a disconnect with like the rest of humanity yeah, he's one that just, like, he has a total lack of self-awareness. Like, I don't think he, I, I think he really thought, while he was making that movie, I think he thought, I'm going to be the next auteur director. I'm going to be, like, the, uh, this is my masterpiece, you know, this is going to this is gonna live on forever. This is going to be the thing that, you know, propels me into superstardom when he created it. And, and I don't think he understood at all, and no one around him maybe was willing to tell him because of whatever his personality uh, or maybe he's just good at blocking out the criticism, but yeah, like he's just someone that has no self-awareness and just makes this horrible movie from start to finish. And he's like the writer, the director, the star, like he's in charge of everything because he thinks this is going to be his, you know, the, the thing that really makes him famous. And in a way it worked. I mean, it made him famous just for all the wrong reasons, but you really get the impression that he thought this is going to be a work of art. People are going to respect this for decades. This is going to be like the little, you know, the, the, the hidden gem film from the early part of my filmography that people seek out after I've won several Oscars. Like, that's what he was thinking while he made it. Pretty much, yeah. It's kind of like um, Plan 9 from Outer Space, where that was um, Edward's, in his mind, that was his work of art. That was his magnum opus. And then it's just known as one of the worst films ever because it's just so incompetent in so many of the things that it undertakes. Like, you can tell with a lot of these films that there are some obvious things that don't make sense like questions that anyone would ask and they're just like it's clear they didn't really think it all the way through they're like well here's my plot it's like okay well what about this it's like no you're not supposed to question that and it's just it's like a magical kind of um just incompetence well edward was another one who like just he didn't really seem to understand people very well he thought that it seemed like when he, t like from what I've been able to understand, when he talked to people, he was having a conversation, whether or not the other person was there was, well, it didn't really matter because he was having the conversation, whether that they were there or not. So it's like, I don't think they really quite understand how things come together. Yeah, definitely. And, and that's one of the things when you, when you come across these movies is, is when the things are unpredictable or when things, when they feel like they're out of their depth, when they feel like they get in over their head and they just can't sort of pull the whole production together, that's almost when the movie becomes better because you stop expecting really early on, 15 minutes in, you stop expecting this to get better. And then you just start looking for the mistakes. You start looking for a boom mic to drop down into frame or you start looking for really clumsy cuts that just like shock your system or you look for things that make no sense in the dialogue or you look for costumes that look like they're made by, by total amateurs. You know, and, and once you start looking for that stuff instead of looking for the clever metaphors or analogies or whatever it is you're looking for in like a Kubrick film who brings so many details to every frame of his movies. Once you give up on that and you just start looking for the mistakes, then it becomes more fun for you because it becomes like a game. And that's almost part of the, that's, that's where you have the dividing line where you cross over from movie just being bad to being so bad. It's at least still entertaining. Pretty much. Yeah. It's like, I don't think that a film can really be so bad it's good if um, it's just poor quality. Like, I've seen tons of poor quality films. That some of them are not that bad, and others that are just bad because it's boring and 
I can't hear anything that's going on. It's like things that are like, I can't believe we forgot to do this thing or like um, there's this, like I said, bad cuts and like, um, have you ever seen the movie Birdemic? No, I haven't watched Birdemic. I know of it, but yeah, I haven't watched that one. That movie is amazing because um, for so many reasons, but one of the things is the scenes will just end. Like there's no, um, there's no transition. It'll be like, they'll just stop talking like, and then it'll be the next scene completely after. I'm like, wait a minute, what just happened? And it's just, you can tell they didn't realize that like, that's not how you're supposed to transition a scene or anything. And it just makes it so much better. It's like just an incompetence in knowing how to make something rather than like, um, rather than just having poor equipment. Now, on on that note, I have to I have to speak of someone here, and I'm probably going to get crucified for this, but, and the, I mean I've only seen two of his movies, but I love movies by Uwe Boll. Yeah, I do too. Yeah, you know, and and the two that I've seen and I, I absolutely love them are House of the Dead, and Postal, and they are just they're just atrocious, and you know Postal, you know which is meant to be super offensive. But, like, House of the Dead was supposed to be, like, a serious adaptation and a precursor to the video game series House of the Dead. And it just falls flat on its face. Like, these characters go go to this island to have a rave, and there's this secret laboratory on the island, which is being run by the guy who made the zombie apocalypse happen in House of the Dead. And, like, zombies start appearing and attacking these people that are, you know... <laughs> at this rave so they're running around the island getting killed look you know the one guy loses his glasses so so he's looking at everything through his video camera like like you can tell like it's supposed to be serious and then like the transition from scene to scene there'll be shots of the arcade version of house of the dead of like zombies getting shot and like it's it's just like a, a uh, like two second video clip from the actual video game being played, which has nothing to do with what's going on in the movie, and it's so out of place. And I just, I think that that like just ridiculousness of that in and of itself, to me is like that. That's just so bad that it just again that when something is so bad that it just makes me smile that somebody thought that was a good decision. That's what makes it so bad that it's good to me. Yeah. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. His movies, I've, I've heard rumors. I don't know how much this drives. I know that he's sort of retired from filmmaking now because of how much criticism he received, but I've heard rumors that a lot of his movies were only financed because people were trying to run like tax schemes where they were using him as like a write off. So they would just give him a little bit of money. He would like use some of it for the, for the movie, funnel the rest back to them, and they would use it as a tax uh, break or whatever. But they'd actually be like, you know scamming the system and getting more money back than they were supposed to. Well, yeah, it was um, something with German tax laws and films. They didn't tax films the same way as everything else. So that's that's why that happened. And yes, I've, I've heard the same thing and read up on it a little bit. And uh, it, it certainly seems like that was the case. But, I mean, it was still some, like, some great bad movies came out of it. That's pretty oh, Definitely, because, like, Postal was great just because it was trying so hard to, to offend everybody. So it literally, like, it doesn't have an audience. Like, no one's going to watch that and sort of cheer along and be like, yeah, I agree with this because it's just so ridiculous. And the game is the same way because that's also an adaptation of a video game. I think they just found in the early 2000s it was just cheap to buy up video game properties to make adaptations of because he also did the Blood Rain series, which I actually I liked those because you get 
sort of like a hot vampire chick fighting Nazis in skin tight leather. I mean, how can you go wrong? See, I've and then never people actually want to played crap all over the Blood Rain series, so I never watched that one. Yeah, like those were just sort of examples, and it's so ridiculous, shouldn't get made, and yet it does. So you just you sort of have to enjoy it. Like, yeah, like technically, he's a bad filmmaker, but the films that he made have such crazy. Uh, scenarios, such crazy sort of plots that you, you almost just want to watch them for the uh, for the train wreck of it. Isn't he the guy who threatens to fight people who criticizes movies or something? Like, well, he's he, completely nuts. He did, yeah, actually. He offered to fight. They, they did um, yeah, celebrity, then, celebrity boxing the one time. Uwe Boll fought some film critic, and he beat the shit out of him. Like, Jesus like Christ. they had to call the fight, because I, the, I think they took the guy out on a stretcher, actually. Jesus Christ. Um, uh, let let me fact check this real quick. Yeah, from what I remember, that there was he he put like an open challenge to anyone that wanted to fight him on behalf of of you know because they didn't like his movies, and he like handpicked his opponent sort of because there were other people that stepped up. Like I don't know if you guys know Sean Baby, the uh, the comedy writer. He's worked for uh, Electronic Gaming Monthly. He's worked for Cracked and different places, and he actually has a background in kickboxing. So he was like, "I'll fight you. This will be fun." Like, I'll enjoy the shit out of, out of beating your ass. And then, yeah, of course, Bull wouldn't fight him, but he, he picked somebody else. So he picked some guy he knew he could beat and be like, look, yeah, my exactly. movie's not bad. Let me pick somebody that seems a little bit weaker than you. I, I, I looked you up. I don't, I don't like this. I don't like how this looks. It's like, well, I won't fight you, but I'll fight your kid. <laughs> yeah. There's, um, yeah, like, again, general, like, uh, people like that, that, you know, he sort of goes into that same category as Tommy Wiseau and, and Ed Wood, where they just sort of lack a lot of self-awareness and, and don't really seem to have a, a keen understanding of, of their place in the universe. So it's always funny to see what they end up doing, because, you know, they're they're sort of like the drunk fan getting into the ring at, at a WWE event, thinking they can pick a fight with Roman Reigns or something. You don't, you don't realize how talented the, the so-called professionals are until you see the unpracticed dipshit sort of step up and fail in public. So it's always sort of cringeworthy and sometimes it seems brash, but it's always memorable and entertaining when these people sort of try to try to get out of their league and do something that they really probably shouldn't be doing. So, you know, in my opinion, there's always like there's two types of people you can't look away from in public, you know, like a beautiful curvy woman in a skimpy red dress and a mutant paraplegic in a motorized wheelchair. They're total opposites, but they evoke the same fascination. Um, so that's really how I, I think of those so bad it's good movies. You know that it's impolite to stare, but you just really can't help yourself. It's an um, amazing metaphor. I, I just have to go back to Uwe Boll for a moment. Um, apparently there was a time where he uh, he sent a, set up an open invitation and actually fought four different critics in a row. Um, some guy from Ain't It Cool News, someone from Rue Morgue Radio, um, some 17-year-old blogger. And um, what I can't, a seventeen-year-old. Yeah, I can't find the other person, but um, apparently he, he won all four matches in a row. Wow! So that's yeah, I mean, that's a special. It's well, that makes him a good filmmaker. That's what I learned. <laughs> if you can beat somebody up, then you're a great. Filmmaker. If you can beat somebody up for hating your film. <laughs> well, speaking of like, because you said he'll just insert like things into his film like scenes from a video game into his film this reminds me of um godfrey ho who just adds scenes to other movies into his film like he takes an incomplete movie makes half a movie and puts them together to try and make a full movie it's fantastic his his whole like filmography is basically made on those like weird 
hatchet jobs that are it's almost like uh in, in power rangers how like power rangers was actually like sort of two tv series sort of melded together it's that sort of way in his movie he made 134 movies i think and they were all just full of stock footage and weird cuts so it's like every one of his movies has like three storylines that don't tie together so it's, it's wonderful i love his movies he's a big part of my notes for this because i love godfrey ho ninja movies oh yeah uh, i love that he always has like one american like richard harrison in there just so that you have, I don't know why Richard Harrison just like lived in Hong Kong for a while making these Godfrey Ho movies, but I'm so grateful that he did, did because it did, just becomes that much more memorable. What was the Godfrey Ho movie we we did? Oh, Ninja the Protector. Okay, that one was that one was pretty amazing with, with the pink ninja and the camouflage ninja. Yeah, and like the guy one... whose motorcycle riding cousin or brother. Or sister's boyfriend was being abducted by the yakuza and then the one yeah and then there's that plot and there's one with the magic ninjas you can just like randomly have a ninja suit and like i didn't even know who he was the first time i saw the film like what the hell am i did i miss like a plot of this like was i like did i walk away for like five minutes where they explain this or something it was just bizarre but yeah that was that was a lot of fun to watch and, and the best part of it is is the parts that godfrey ho actually made are the parts of the movie that you want to see? H- Hello. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, the the, the parts that you want to see are Godfrey Ho's parts. Like, why didn't he just make a full movie by himself instead of doing these chop jobs? You know, because the, the the movies that were incomplete that he used were just they were just terrible in and of themselves. Yeah, like, I don't know what he was really going for. He might have been part of some weird tax scam in China, too, for all we know, because it's just, there's so many movies in such a brief period of time. Like, in 1987 alone, he released something like 15 or 20 movies. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. Like, he just basically lived in an editing room, just cutting together sort of disparate plots into sort of random things. Like, even when you put the movies on, if you try to focus, you can't. You literally can't focus through, like, Ninja Terminator, because it doesn't make any sense. It's just random scene after random scene someone has a ninja card and for some reason ninjas have to respond to the ninja card and no one knows why and no one has any idea what's going on you can't tell the movies apart for the most part because they all have the same name like i have a list of just a few for any listeners that don't know godfrey hill's movies you'll know them pretty distinctly ninja terminator ninja destroyer full metal ninja zombie versus ninja ninjas demons massacre cobra versus ninja ninja death squad Golden Ninja Warrior, Ninja Dragon, Ninja Fantasy, the Ninja Squad, Tough Ninja, the Shadow Warrior, the Ultimate Ninja, Ninja Destroyer, Ninja Thunderbolt, Leopard Fist Ninja, Ninja the Violent Sorcerer, the Blazing Ninja, Ninja Commandments, Ninja Power Force, and of course, Thunder Ninja Kids and the Golden Adventure. Like he just, it's just so random. It's just like a word souffle. Just Ninja plus anything else, glue them together, and boom, Godfrey Ho movie. Ninja Platypie from Mars. Ninja yeah. Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> yeah, it's just fantastic. Like, I, like you were saying, like, I wonder what was going through his head where it's like, yeah, this will be a great idea if I could splice these two movies together. Like, and okay, now now we we've come to another factor here with the Godfrey Ho movies, and that's the title. Like, the title can make or break one of those movies. It's so bad, it's good, or it can make you think that it's going to be one of those movies that's so so bad, it's good. One of those movies I know that lulled me into a false sense of security was Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter. Oh yeah, the musical that's not really a musical. Nor does it have Jesus hunting vampires. Like, 
Just just think of that. Just like listen to that title and tell me you can't get a little bit excited in your inside. Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter. Like how can you go wrong with that? They did. They yeah, definitely like, went wrong with that. <laughs> yeah. There was um well one thing with Godfrey Ho is like I wonder if like maybe it's an art style that in a thousand years when society crumbles, like people are gonna find his old tapes, be like, This man was an artistic genius and like every film from there will be based on his style. Like they were just living in the wrong time period he'll, he'll before be, his genius is discovered. He'll be the Andy Warhol of Hong Kong. Probably. Yeah, it could happen. The title definitely does sort of sometimes inadvertently suck you in. I mean, that's definitely how I got into most Godfrey Ho movies, because you see the title and you think, oh, this is going to be like a Shaw Brothers quality kung fu flick just with a bunch of ninjas. And then you actually turn it on and you realize your mistake. Like, there's a lot of ones that, like, I think Roger Corman was sort of the king of that, of creating great titles um, and great posters that normally the movies just didn't live up to. I mean, he was great at sort of doing these low-budget movies that always turned a profit. But, I mean, he had just great titles like Attack of the Crab Monsters and The Saga of the Viking Women and their voyage to the waters of the Great Sea Serpent and stuff like that. And a lot of times they just didn't really deliver the goods, um, but he sort of made his career on that. He's still making, still making movies based on just sort of uh, you know, salacious titles that don't necessarily... Uh, necessarily deliver doesn't he like live in the basement of the sci-fi channel or something now like like every time they, they need a quick movie they like they wake him up hey hey roger we, we need something for saturday night poke him with a well, stick that's the funny thing he's making all those quick you know low budget cgi monster movies for them but they're always arguing from what i understand because he just wants to like he just wants to make 10 movies in two months and if one of them hits he wants to just pound that into the ground and make sequel after sequel of that one monster and they won't let him do it like they've let him do it with sharknado but they they wouldn't let him do it for years and years like actually i think sharknado sort of came out of sort of that argument where he was like they started with like mega shark and you know giant octopus and stuff like that and then they got progressively weirder because he just wanted to keep making sequels he just wanted to make like mega shark 2 and mega shark 3 and mega shark 4 and they said no you can't do it so he said fine bleep you i'm gonna make shark it's a shark and an octopus and he just started doing crazy stuff until it came up to like a shark and a tornado and then suddenly they were like oh we have a hit on our hands it's amazing how after all that like sun somehow sharknado came out of it and it was successful yeah that's that's another one like i don't understand how people you know they look at sharknado and they're like oh this movie's so bad it's it's like the one of, it's like one of the worst movies i've ever seen and i'm like it's, not even close. it's actually not that bad at all like this is actually pretty pretty high quality when you actually get out there into the world. It's like, for what it is, it succeeds at what it is, at least um, the ones I've seen. Like, I mean, that's that's a movie I've heard people say, oh, it's so bad that it's good, and I disagree because I think it's not like it's a great movie, but I think genuinely it has good qualities, and it's a good, fun movie. Yeah, it's a parody film. It's um, supposed to be ridiculous. Yeah, I think like yeah, people for spoofing B movies, I think you get a lot of leeway. Yeah, I think that's one thing people confuse on um, parodies with um, being bad films. It's like, no, that's they know what they're doing. They're setting out to make a certain type. But it's like saying, oh, this this sci-fi movie is terrible because it's not a horror film. It's like if it falls in a certain category, it's just, it you have to judge it from that, I guess. Yeah, 
Like, expectation definitely goes into it in a big way because, I mean, in general, happiness in life is a function of your expectations. If you expect something great to happen and then something good happens, you're disappointed. If you expect nothing to happen at all and then something good happens, you're ecstatic. So a lot of times if people build it up in their heads, which happens a lot with, like, the adaptations, um, like when the first Howard the Duck movie came out, it was a big bomb because people, Howard the Duck was actually popular at the time. People were, you know, hyped up like this is... George Lucas, you know, producing this movie and, and it has Leah Thompson in it and it's going to be so good and blah, blah, blah. And then it actually comes out and it was just sort of weird and quirky and, and had some really odd choices in it. And it wasn't really for kids and it wasn't really for adults. And so it didn't really have an audience. So, I mean, the expectation there really is what ruined that movie because personally, Howard the Duck is one of my favorite movies. I think it's great, but the public at large sort of has always derided it and said, you know, oh, this, this movie's just awful. But to me, I'm like, it has high production values and lowbrow humor, and that's really all I could ask for. Um, they have, like, quasi-bestiality between Leah Thompson's punk rock chick and, and Howard the Duck, so that's awkward and tons of fun. So, yeah, like, I, I don't know. Like, to me, if, you, if you're expecting something to be great and then it's not quite what you expected or it's not quite the movie you made in your mind, that's where you're coming across the the disconnect between what a good movie is and what a so bad it's good movie is. Exactly. You got to know what kind of film it is a little bit. Like if you're just going into it, it's like this is going to be this type of film and then it's not. Well, it doesn't mean it was bad. It just meant you kind of misjudged what you were going into. But like to just completely disregard that and say it's bad for because it was kind of weird or different. Like I think it's just kind of not knowing how to see a movie really. Yeah, like, I, I haven't watched, I don't know how other people have been doing it, but I've stopped watching trailers altogether. I think that, like, the marketing companies are sort of ruining a lot of these big-budget experiences because they're they're trying to sort of find out what what's the best-selling point of this movie. Let's cram that down people's throats. And sometimes they almost make empty promises because they build these great trailers that sort of showcase a, a, a movie like, you know, like Logan is coming up. A lot of people are hyped for the new Wolverine movie. And so they build it up, build it up, build it up. So you just see these little like 90 second bursts and your brain fills in the other 90 minutes to tell you how, what this movie's going to be and what you want from it. Then you go to see it and then the other 90 minutes are filled with something different. It doesn't mean it's filled with something bad. It just means it's not filled with the movie you created in your mind. It's almost like reading a book uh, where, where your sort of your creativity is filling in exactly what you want. And that's where a lot of the problem is. So I just stop watching trailers, man. Like I'm so much happier when I go see movies. I just go see them completely blind i just know the title by being you know seeing the, the poster or whatever i know who's in it and that's all i need to know i'm gonna see it darn near anything because it's something i have to do so i'm just gonna enjoy it well, i i totally agree and i i actively avoid trailers too and i just i remember the simpsons movie when that had come out and you know i was a fan of the simpsons cartoon show and you know i'd seen the trailers for the movie and i'm like oh you know it'll be a fun little time and you know the the trailer made me laugh maybe the first time I saw it. And then I saw the movie. And yeah, the funniest parts of the movie were in the 30-second trailer. And the rest of the movie, I just sat there. I was like, "What? what is this? Like, like, did they really think this was going to succeed? Which, I mean, obviously it did because it's, you know, a huge franchise. But you see, they never made a movie again. Yeah, I think well, with a lot of adaptations like that, you've got a, like a 15-minute to a half-hour show. And now they have to make they have to expand that to two hours, and it's really not. It's 
that can be pretty difficult. So I think lots of times with that, it's people are so used to writing these short little things where it's like, you know, a couple jokes that kind of fit well together, but then they have to expand those jokes to two hours. It's it. In my experience, it normally doesn't seem to come out well. I, I feel like every comedy is like that, though. You you see the trailer for it, and then you see the movie, and you're like, well, the, the best three jokes were in the trailer, and those weren't even that great. And That's I, why, like, I think my favorite comedies of all time are, are not just straight, broad comedies. Like, a movie like The Hangover is just a comedy, and that's all it's going to be, which is why all The Hangover movies were essentially the exact same movie just, you know, done over again. But the best comedies are ones that are like genre films that are, you know, parodies or spoofs of the genre. So, like, when you think to Blazing Saddles or you think to, you know, Spaceballs or Young Frankenstein or whatever, like, these are movies that play well as the genre they're supposed to be, uh, more probably Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein than Spaceballs. Like, they play well as a Western and as a horror movie, and then they manage to throw in jokes as often as possible. So you have that structure already existing that's familiar. So you're watching a horror movie, and then there's also jokes. That makes it a lot easier than just waiting for the joke, waiting for the joke, waiting for the joke, because those movies are almost always going to disappoint. There's not going to be a movie that can have a, a laugh every 45 seconds for you know for a solid 90 minutes. Like They're going to have hits and misses, or they're going to have plot. I mean, plot doesn't sell, so they have to throw a plot in there somewhere, and a lot of times that's where you lose the joke. Yeah, I think for a lot of films like that, it's... It's very, it's like you said, it's well structured. It's kind of like, you know, you have to, you have to be acquainted with some of these movies. And if you see like a horror film, it's like, you know, if, if something's done in like kind of a humorous way, it's like, you know, I could see that happening in one of these films or, you know, that's a pretty funny take on that. But like with a lot of comedies, it's just like, here's a joke, here's a joke, here's a joke. It may hit, may, may hit, it may miss. And it's kind of you're hoping that they hit more than they miss. Like I, I've seen, I've seen some comedies recently where it seems like in the course of like a thirty second conversation, they're just jamming as many jokes as possible in this short amount of dialogue, and it's so annoying. It's like, all right, can you just shut up and calm down for like a minute? It's like I, I. I don't even know what's going on. And they'll have these like awkward interactions where like somebody says something stupid or drops something and it goes on way too long. It's like, okay, now th- this stopped being funny like five minutes ago. I, th- I think my favorite of those kind of movies, it's, it's a, you know, dual genre is the, the horror comedy is killer clowns from outer space. And I just, yeah. it, that's yeah, that one's one's movies. That I, I, I think it's, you know, so bad. It's good because you've got, People being turned into cotton candy and sucked through straws by, by alien clowns and just the my favorite line is you know what are you gonna do knock my block off, and then the the clown like literally punches the guy's head off. That one was I, I wasn't really too into that film. I kind of got bored after a while. Like it's one of those films that like I get what they were doing, but I don't know. I was I don't even remember really watching too much of it, but I just remember kind of being bored with it. Yeah. My probably my favorite comedy is probably still Airplane, just because I thought that the way they took a drama and like a serious situation and just made everything funny was just very well done. And I obviously a lot of films have like copied that or like just been inspired by that. But I think like the jokes that like it's well known for are still funny today. And like you see a lot of things reference it, and I just think it stands out really well. Yeah, definitely. And they were just, I mean, that, that group, it was, what, it was the Zucker Brothers or whatever, like, they were known for doing that, because they did the same thing with uh, with the um, 
the Leslie Nielsen police movies, the uh, God, I'm sorry, the Naked, Naked Gun. Gun. Um, they did the Naked Gun movies too, and it's, it's the same type of comedy where it's just it's a visual gag, it's a it's a pun, it's a they have every different type of humor in every scene if possible. They're trying to do background gags and they're trying so they're trying to make you laugh in like ten different ways, and so they go with the the really witty stuff and they go with the lowbrow humor and just mixing it all together really makes it work. A lot of the comedies now, I mean, probably the best comedy I've seen in the last couple of years was Spy with um with the big lady whose name I can't remember. Um, and Jason Statham and then all them like spy was really genuinely good and funny but again it was a it was an action adventure movie that happened to be funny but I feel like in that movie they they just resorted to one type of humor it's just that cynical dialogue a lot of foul language and it's just that hammered over and over and over again as opposed to like airplane or the naked gun movies where they did every type of comedy imaginable so the variety really sells those movies in a way that you know modern comedies really come down to just sort of sarcastic witty one-liners it's all just 140 characters or less make me laugh and uh and and i think that's where a lot of people are struggling to sort of get on i don't know how we got on the topic of this comedy yeah i don't i don't know if it was supposed to be a joke or not but i just i just want to throw this out there something that really fell flat on its face and of course a lot of things did in the matrix series um towards the end but when we got to the point where you know he was looking for the train man or or whatever they called him and it was literally just a guy that rides the train. Um, you know, after you had the the key maker who was literally a guy sitting in a room making keys. I don't know if it was supposed to be a, a joke or, you know, it was a play on words or, you know, a program thing. But there were just so many parts to that movie that it was, the expectations were so high. And it just sort of went down over the over the years. Yeah, I think that that's another one where the expectations sort of went way above what they could ever deliver on. I mean, they they had to deliver something different than the first movie because if they just delivered the first movie over and over again, people would have criticized it for that. But then in making those sort of like and trying to make those aggressive alterations and sort of trying to flesh it out into a trilogy because the first movie really did stand alone. They didn't need to make a sequel. They left it open-ended, but they could have just gone with that sequel. And trying to, to continue it, they sort of ended up venturing into that cheesy you know so bad sort of area personally i love all the matrix movies i think they're great but i totally understand everyone's criticism of the sequels because they definitely are different than the first movie they definitely don't have the same feeling um and then they there are some things that just sort of fall flat i mean to be honest there are some areas where they just sort of failed and at least if the failure was fun like you were saying then it would sort of go back into sort of being enjoyable sometimes the failure is just a failure and you're like man this could have been better i expected this to be better well that was the first time you see the key maker you you, you do you laugh you're like oh it's a, it's a little guy in a room making keys and then when they just use that over and over for the different people that do different things within the matrix it just it drove it into the ground yeah yeah same Going back to uh, films that are so bad that they're good, not just films that are bad. Um, yeah, <laughs> what's um yeah, like do you think that film like um in general films that are so bad it's bad they're good have certain qualities that they have to have, or do you think it's just like a level of incompetency that can go anywhere? Like, is there like a certain quality that they have to follow, or like I don't know? Like, I'm trying to think of a uh, best way of putting that. I think there's a lot of qualities, but it's it's the mix of them together. Yeah, but what qualities would they be? Just like incompetency of like of producing or like I think like 
like acting doesn't has to be like relatively bad at least with like delivering lines like i think if a line is like not poorly written but delivered badly then that'll make the difference or if a line is delivered great but it's just a stupid line then it's just gonna fail and i think that the two kind of ways can kind of really get the same results yeah, like, I don't, I don't think there's really any necessarily, like, a recipe for a So Bad It's Good movie. Like, all movies sort of have five or six areas where you hope that they succeed, whether it's, like, plot and structure and composition and editing and music and costumes and all these things. And, and basically, if you take any of those six, if you take two or three of those six things and make them really bad and make the others really good, you're probably going to have a movie that's sort of somewhere in the middle and, and it's not as good as you expected and it's not quite bad enough. So it's sort of like you just have to get the right balance. And for everyone, it's going to be subjective, right? Because I'm going to like stuff that's super wacky and colorful and, you know, action-packed, whereas someone else might like a so bad it's mo- it's good movie like The Room, where it's a lot more boring and just sort of it fails. So I think that's where you end up with those with those disconnects where some people go, well, you know, Monos, the hands of fate is so bad it's good, and Plan 9 is so bad it's good, and The Room is so bad it's good, and Troll 2 is so bad it's good, and they, and they keep listing off the same ones because that's what appeals maybe to their sensibilities. But like, to my sensibilities, it's more stuff like um, like The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. Like, that's a movie that isn't terribly well-known because it's just not a good mainstream seller. But it's a decent movie. Like, it's well-made. You can tell that, like, the, the people in charge knew how to film. They knew how to edit. They knew how to do, you know, costumes. And it's just sort of a weird premise. Have, have either of you guys seen The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai? I actually did a long time ago. Um, between the years of 2009 and 2011, at some point, I know I saw it then. Yeah, it's just sort of, it's just an odd one, you know? So it's like they have Peter Weller as a rock and roll physicist, adventurer, sort of superhero guy, and he has a literal band, music band, but are made up of scientists, one of which is Jeff Goldblum, who's dressed as a cowboy for almost the whole movie. And they have to battle weird aliens who are like John Lithgow and Christopher Lloyd are playing these certifiably insane alien invaders from another dimension. And it's just sort of... Like, that's sort of so wacky and weird, and there's a lot going on, and it's energetic, that it's going to keep me engaged. My ADD brain is going gonna, is gonna to enjoy that. But someone else might watch it and be like, uh, it didn't really, you know, didn't really do it for me. But I like ones like that. So I watch a lot of sort of the really high-energy, but low-intellect bad movies. So it's like, I like The Last Dragon from the mid-'80s. If anyone's seen The Last Dragon, it's sort of like a... It's sort of like a black kung fu movie with a lot of music because it was done by the guy who ran Motown Records. So he thought, this will be a great idea. I'll feature my own recording artist so I can push records and show music videos in the middle of the movie. So it's like a kung fu musical. Uh, and, and that's just sort of so ridiculous that it has to be watchable. And I love the guy who plays Shonuff, the Shogun of Harlem. Like that's just Everything about that is sort of so campy and ridiculous and hyper-realistic that you know, you just you just can't really miss on a movie like that, in my mind. I just saw the film Equinox, which was really entertaining. It's got this horrible, like, claymation and everything, and just the plot's ridiculous. Like, these people just kind of appear and then, like, die. And there's one part where there's this guy, like, I don't know what he's trying to do. He's trying to, like, get with this woman, and he's got this, like, weird face, face and everything. Just, like, 
trying to kiss her with like his tongue out and then like he sees a cross and gets scared away it was like one of the most bizarre films but it was re- it was actually really fun to watch because it's just so weird and there's so much going on like you said yeah that's the thing if you can sort of have a wacky premise even if you even if you sort of miss on that premise i'll enjoy myself but then on the on the flip side there can be a movie with a stupid premise that's just totally lame that i'll still get behind as long as it's done with so much sort of enthusiasm and verb that like it'll be entertaining i really like this movie called body rock that but just no one has seen it's one of those sort of knockoffs of of Breaking and Breaking Two Electric Boogaloo is one of those knockoffs of that, but it stars Lorenzo Lamas as just this leader of sort of like a somewhat homoerotic street gang known as the Body Rock Crew. So they sort of dance through the streets, making tough guy poses, and they spray paint on trains, and they take time out of that busy schedule to like squat in an abandoned building and hold break dancing competitions. So Lorenzo, who's known as Chili because he's just so cool, is offered a gig as like a performance artist at a trendy hip nightclub. For the upper crust art community but this requires him to learn how to truly break dance so he goes to his best friend an eight-year-old black kid named magic and the kid teaches chili how to become a damn good break dancer so his nightclub acts blows up chili star rises but now his friends in the body rock crew are left behind will chili keep it real and choose the street life or will he sell out and leave his crew behind it's just such a bad movie <laughs> But it cracks me up. Like, I can't help but smile watching. It's like day glow body paint and things are neon. And there's crazy, you know, dance sequences that are just hilarious with, you know, total, because it's from 1984, so total mid-80s, you know, breakdancing style. It's just phenomenal. Like, that kind of movie has a bad premise that couldn't possibly be good. But they really tackled it, like, seriously. They're like, we're going to make the best damn breakdancing movie anybody's ever seen. And, and they didn't realize that the best breakdancing movie is still, like, the worst movie. It sounds like a magical um, time. I, I got to see that now. Yeah, that's uh, that, that sounds like a good one. It, it it actually reminds me of like like they're the uh, they're um, like a gang related to one of the gangs from Surf Nazis Must Die. There was the gay surfer gang in that movie, and I feel like this is this is like the uh, the the inner city gay gang as opposed to like the coastal gay gang. I'm thinking these guys should be like should have been one of the gangs in the Warriors who um, attack them and all that. That would have been entertaining. Yeah, like had the baseball furies <laughs> and then had these guys pop out in the body rock yeah, crew. They come from behind. Like they're from a different part of the city. <laughs> yeah, I think with movies that are so bad they're good. They have to genuinely be trying to tell a story. It's just that what they're doing is so ridiculous that it completely fails, but it fails genuinely, like, just collapses upon itself, where I think movies that are just bad in general, most of them seem to be very formulaic. It's like, you know, they're trying to make this type of movie, so they've got all, like, the checklists and everything. It just turns out boring or just dumb in general. But I think, like, with movies that are so bad that they're good, it's it has to be something that they're genuinely trying and they think is a good idea. It's just the fact that it's not, and... I think that I can at least respect a film that's so bad it's good because most of the time it seems they had a genuine idea and I think most people can kind of see that even if they don't like the film. It's They can tell somebody was trying to make a film that they wanted to make and in a way they made that film, it just wasn't as good of an idea as they thought. Yeah, there's two of my favorite bad movies that sort of fall into that category of like someone really thought like this is going to be the movie that that elevates me this is going to be my magnum opus 
And so they get a little bit of power in Hollywood and they're able to sort of make the movie they want to make. They get total control, total creative control, and then they just blow it. So two of my favorites that sort of fall into that. I love Hudson Hawk from 1991, which is a Bruce Willis movie, where this was around the time when he was doing like the Bruno uh, blues music stuff. He had already like blown up because of Die Hard and Moonlighting and everything else. So everyone was just willing to throw any money at Bruce Willis to get him to start a movie. So he like he he co-wrote this movie. He helped produce it. He helped direct it. And this was going to be like his his thing that he tried for two years to get made. Basically, he's like him and Danny Aiello are cat burglars who try to steal Leonardo da Vinci's works of arts from the Vatican. But these, it's sort of wacky. And, and even though they're cat burglars, they're not like super professional cat burglars. They use classic like jazz songs from the big band era to time their heists. So they're like, how much time do we have? We have two thirty-one. Okay, that's just enough to sing "Swinging on a Star." So they start singing "Swinging on a Star" while they're you know robbing a, a museum or whatever. Um, instead of just wearing a watch, because a watch would be just too too complicated, right? So the whole time they're being like tracked by CIA agents who are dressed like punk rockers and named after candy bars. Don't know why that choice was made, but David Caruso from CSI plays Kit Kat, and a big body bodybuilder who played uh, he played Leatherface a couple times in the in the recent movies in the 2000s. He played a guy named Butterfinger and so on and so forth. Frank Stallone shows up in there as an idiot mob mobster. And there's just like an epically funny rich couple who blackmails them into doing their bidding. Played by Sandra Bernhardt and some other guy I can't remember. And so it was intended as an adventure comedy, but it so thoroughly fails to actually be funny with the jokes they're telling that it accidentally becomes even more hilarious. They're just doing really odd, odd choices. At one point, the main woman that Bruce Willis is supposed to be in love with starts squealing like a like a dolphin when she's under sedation. Someone's trying to like interrogate her. She just starts squealing like a dolphin. It's just really weird choices. And then sort of the hyper-realistic comedy that they use or, or whatever, the over-the-top comedy, just they really like it It lands for me because it is so energetic. And he really thought, like, this is going to be the one. This is going to be the thing that blows me up. And and it's just so awful that it's it's wonderful to see him sort of realize that his dream wasn't necessarily anything anybody wanted to see. Yeah, that's that sounds hilarious. I gotta check that one out. But it's one of those things where it's like I could totally do comedy, guys. You know, I'm gonna be great at this. I'm gonna be known as you know this great um, comedy film writer. It's like no, it's a bit more complicated than that. Just because you think something is funny doesn't mean other people will. Yeah, all my buddies say I'm hilarious, so this is gonna work out great. I see that with comedians a lot. It's like, well, my wife says I'm funny. It's like, well, she's also your wife, so it, not everybody else will. It's just like yeah. everything that Adam Sandler has been in post-1999. Yeah. Oh, God. yeah. Someone needs to say no to him. He needs somebody new around him that can just sort of say, you know what, Adam? Let's pass on this one. This isn't such a good idea. You don't need to play you and your sister. How could that possibly fail? <laughs> see like and those just sort of fall into the thing just so bad they're bad like i don't think in 20 years we'll be talking about like jack and jill with like these fond memories of the first time you saw it on you know daytime tv or whatever like people are just pretty much going to remember that as a failure yeah they're just like unpleasant to watch like i i ended up seeing pixels and it was just what an unpleasant experience that was to watch. Oh, my God. And the premise was actually, like, it, it could have been so good. They could have done so much with it. 
And I think what really ruined it was the people they cast in it. Well, I think in general that was a, um, well, video games are popular. Like, let's make a video game movie. It's like, you have to be kind of clever to do that. Because most most things based on, like, video games in the real world are really, really bad. Because it's just they have a premise and they don't really know where to go with it. So they'll throw in, like, video game terms and, like, look, a character you know. And that's basically it. And this is that plus Adam Sandler. And it was just god-awful. But the special effects were great. Yeah, and the sad thing... The sad thing is that they managed to do that sort of exact storyline in a Futurama episode, and it was great. They managed to do it in a 22-minute episode, and they had more jokes in that 22 minutes, and it managed to work better for an actual like start-to-finish plot than his whole movie with all of his friends and millions of dollars. It just doesn't make sense to me. Pretty much. I feel like with the people who made Futurama, they, like... They've they've actually played some video games like within like the last few years, or at least they remember like what was fun about it. Whereas Pixels just came off as a movie where it's like I'm trying to be hip and trendy with the kids, like, and it no one likes that. Like if you're trying to like make like appeal to what's popular, you're never going to be popular because people can kind of tell when they're being when somebody's faking it and. I think with um, Futurama, it was like a genuine, like, you know, I remember these games when I was a kid, you know, this would be an entertaining entertaining thing, whereas, like, a lot of things like Pixels are just like, you know, this will sell, this is real big now, and it just comes off as being a poor imitation of stuff. Yeah, the, the authenticity factor, it matters so much in every movie, whether it's a good movie or a bad movie. Like, if you're try- if you're being inauthentic, if you're being disingenuous, you're right, people can smell that from a mile away. I mean, they can tell that you're just like trying to sort of trying to appeal to this demographic or that demographic or somebody in marketing said that you could get the 18 to 35 demo if you included you know whatever technology in your new movie and so you decided to make a whole movie about you know iPhones and people using you know Pinterest or whatever and then just it comes off as being really sort of sad if it doesn't serve the plot it probably doesn't need to be in there unless it's going to be fun so that should be the rule. If it's, if it's not going to serve the plot, at least it damn well better be fun as hell. Exactly. I remember in like two that well, like around 2010 and like years like that when um, texting started to become a thing. It's like you'd see all these movies with like and TV shows with people texting, and you just see like the text and everything like using text lingo, and it was so annoying because it's like it's one of those obvious like you know this is how people talk. Isn't that clever? It's like no, you're you're. You're not doing it right. It's like people using old memes or memeing incorrectly, and it's just why'd you even bother? Like, just you, you don't know how to do it. Just please go in the corner and just leave everybody alone. Yeah, I'm very aware of that when I'm watching a movie. Like, this movie's not gonna age well because they chose to sort of ground it so heavily in this specific year when it's coming out. Like, I don't even know if it's still coming out, but they were making an emoji movie that was supposed to come out this year, and I'm like, that's not gonna age well. Like. People in 20 years aren't going to be like, oh, yeah, the, the emojis. Yeah, that was that was the best way to communicate. Like, I'm pretty sure we'll have moved on to something better by then. Pretty much. I remember a while back there was um, this thing on, on YouTube and throughout the Internet. There was um, this thing called uh, Slenderman. And, you know, they made some games off it. There were a lot of YouTube channels that revolved around that. Then, like, they made a, an actual movie about it, and it was horrible, because, like, it was fun that it was just a bunch of, like, independent YouTube channels, like, they weren't high quality, and, like, 
they weren't anything special, but they were well done in what they were trying to do. And it was kind of like this small kind of internet community. But when like an actual production company tried to make it into a full length feature, it it failed completely because it lost like a lot of what made it fun in the first place. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you can you can lose sort of something soul when you when you sort of involve too much money, or sometimes people just sort of underestimate how how far uh, a few dollars goes. I mean, I've I've often said about some of these like low budget indie productions that I watch or review. I've often said like, hey man, like this movie is totally watchable because it's a low budget movie and they're having fun. But if you gave the same people twenty million dollars and and the production staff and let them actually like go into a Hollywood backlot and shoot this movie again, it would be worse. Like it's better that they made it for ten thousand dollars in their hometown because they managed to have a lot of little quirks and a lot of personality and a lot of that authenticity again that sort of uh, uh, really makes it something that you can identify with when you watch it. You know, whereas you take the humanity completely out of it when you put something into into a big production budget. No, and that comes full circle for me back to Troll 2, where <laughs> did, did I like the movie? No, but can I appreciate it for how bad it was and how low budget it was and what they did with what they had? Yes, I love what they did. Do, do I think that, you know, it was the, the best worst movie? No. Do I think they, they did a good job at making a movie with what they had? Hell yeah. Yeah, I was looking at that film because I, I didn't actually realize what it was, like that it was one of those it's so bad, it's good films. Then watching it, I'm like, oh man, this is hilariously bad. And then I found out like it had this huge following. I'm like, oh, well, that explains it. So, yeah, I think that like um, with films like Troll 2, if um, if you expect it and you've seen like all the um, all the clips from it, it's just not as funny, but... Well, even though it's like yeah. kind of with the the room, like a lot of the best um, scenes of that are everybody knows, but I think just the room just fails to just have sequences of time right that it's just it's just funny in that. Yeah, and then some of those movies that are just sort of so bad they're boring can become better if you're part of a community, a film community of people that similarly enjoy it. You know, they go and they do these like showings of the room every year. Uh, where a bunch of people get together and see it. And that makes it different because you're actually hanging out with friends. It might be the only time you see those people during that year. And so that makes it more enjoyable. If, if you've ever been to a, a live showing of the Rocky Horror Picture Show where they show the movie, but they have actors in costume around the theater doing different things and dancing and singing along and whatever, like that really makes that movie better. The first time I saw Rocky Horror Picture Show as a kid, I didn't understand why people liked it. I thought, well, this is just sort of stupid. And I gave up on it. Then years later, I went to one of the live showings at, when I was, you know, 18 or 19, and I had this guy wearing nothing but a gold bikini dancing up and down the aisles, and he put one leg on one arm of my chair. I'm sitting right dead center in the theater. He comes all the way down the aisle, puts one knee on one arm of my chair, one knee on the other arm of my chair, and starts humping me in the face while everyone's singing and dancing and having a good time. And then I just sort of realized, not that that made me like it, but just sort of realized, like, this is why people like this movie. It's communal. It's, you know, it's an experience where you actually get to know people. When I got home and told my mom about how I had gone and seen a live-action version of it or whatever, she perked right up because back in the 70s, she had seen a bunch of live shows of a Rocky Horror Picture Show where they throw the rice and they, you know, they flick their, uh, the, the rubber gloves and everything else. And so it's like she was into the whole thing, too. And you realize that this sort of bridges generation gaps, too, you know? So this is just one of those things where a bad movie can bring people together. And so some of those ones like The Room or like Troll 2, if you go see the live 
showings of it with a bunch of similarly minded people and the, the adult beverages are flowing, you're probably going to have a much better time than just putting it on at home by yourself and, and just sort of suffering through it. Exactly. It's kind of like just um, creating an atmosphere where it, it almost doesn't even matter like that how bad the movie is or like certain like certain parts become funny because they become part of the performance like especially in like Rocky Horror when they'll say certain things and you'll throw um things um toward this toward the stage and just things like that it becomes funnier because you know what's going to happen and you know that it's going to be like a big thing and it's um yeah it just kind of becomes a group a kind of a group sort of experience yeah I think that can really that can change your perception of a lot of things. So uh, you know, I just I encourage people. There's actually a lot of criticism of the concept of so bad it's good movies online. A lot of people just feel like the concept of a movie being so bad it's good is oxymoronic and it's not really worth their time. Because and I can't really disagree because on its face it sounds ludicrous. Why would you purposely listen to a bad musician, for instance? Like why would you listen to that William Hung guy that was on American Idol years back? And then claim in some ironic, ironic fashion that you know he sings so bad that he's actually good. Like you can't make that argument. You know there's great music out there. It's easy enough to find. So why waste your life listening to subpar music when you know how to find Mozart or Bach or whatnot? You know, like are you a lunatic? But you know, I sometimes feel like maybe I am a little bit of a lunatic because when I put on a flick and I start seeing those mistakes come up and I realize that I'm watching a flawed production, I actually get a little excited. I'm like, oh, this is gonna be one of those. Like, oh, thank God, I don't have to sit here and, and sort of rack my brain to find all the weird little metaphors and analogies that they're trying to create. I can sort of just turn my brain off and just laugh along with it. And probably just being demented from years of trauma releases and micro-budget VHS slashers. But my brain is essentially a dumpster at this point. I feel like I'm Al Capone in the later years after his brain is riddled with syphilis and he just can't make out what's good from what's bad. I don't even know what the difference between a good movie and a bad movie is anymore. Uh, so, you know, I, I sometimes feel like I'm just more excited by something that's going to be a train wreck than I would be from something that's going to be a masterpiece. You know, I think in a way, bad films and bad performances kind of like almost humanize us. Like you could watch a movie and everyone's, especially like big Hollywood films, where everyone's like, you know, most of them are like real attractive. Everything looks good. There's so much money getting thrown there. It's kind of like this is not... This is these aren't normal people. So when you see a movie that's really like so bad, it's good. It's like this is genuine. This is a genuine fuck up. But you know, I fuck up on things all the time. So it's kind of it makes it almost seem like you're relating with the person who made it, even if you can't quite. It's like you know, I recognize kind of what it's like to do something like poorly, and it kind of like it, it almost like makes you feel like it almost like humanizes the experience. It's like going to karaoke and listening to your friends horribly sing a rendition of, um, I don't even know, like, um, any, like, um, anything by journey. Yeah. Yeah. Like journey or something like that. It's like, it's bad, but you know, it's fun. Cause it's like, you know, it kind of humanizes like every, the experience. Like it's kind of nice seeing people, other people fail at things. Like not even in like a malicious way, but like it's, it's kind of humanizing in a way. And maybe part of it is malicious in a way. Maybe we all kind of want to see other people fail to a degree. But I, I'd like to think it's more, it's, it's a little nicer than that. Yeah, the most popular videos on YouTube are the fail videos. I mean, let's exactly. be real. They're the ones getting six million hits in, in two days because you're watching them over and over again just to see some guy fall off a skateboard and break his leg or someone slip into a river or something like everyone is watching that stuff. And these movies are sort of the original version of that because 
you know, normal, like you said, normal mainstream Hollywood movies, they're perfect. Robert Downey Jr. always has the witty thing to say, and everyone always looks amazing all the time. Even after they've been through hell, their hair is perfect in every way, and they don't have a, a scratch on them. And, you know, those types of things get old. Those types of decisions get boring, and you don't notice how annoying they are until you see a movie where everything's going wrong. And then you go, oh, wow, this was actually made by a real person. And then, like you said, you almost feel like you identify with them. So you almost feel bad if you make too much fun of it. Unless the person's just really unlikable, like Tommy Wiseau in the room. Pretty much. It's kind of interesting nowadays because you'll see celebrities who just come off, like you said, as like perfect all the time. Like they're they're outside of they're outside of normal people. And then you'll see like people on YouTube where they'll have like a, a much bigger influence in like their opinions and everything because you'll see them like screw up once in a while. They're much more relatable. Whereas like you'll especially like during um like certain political things or with um you know there's um the more you know commercials which are like they come off as somebody who like thinks that they're better than you and no one really listens to them even if their advice is good because it's like this isn't a real person but you'll see like somebody like on youtube where it's like you know they're they're just like me like i can i'll listen to them more because i feel like they're more of a person rather than like someone who like just wakes up like with just perfect and like this just like never has a bad day and it's just kind of like you you can't really relate to them so it's whatever message they have is going to be lost by the fact that they're not they're not realistic and like i noticed with a lot of people like a lot of directors and a lot of like filmmakers it's not until you hear that like you know they did something like crazy or like that you know they had like a humanizing experience that you really care about them as a as a director or like a writer or anything like that because you think like oh they're just cranking out books or movies like real easy you know like not like you know it's if you're an indie film director it's like you know i'm trying real hard to get this going like you like you really can't relate to them and i think they disconnect really you're starting to see it a lot more that thing that like indie films and like youtube are really becoming much more easily 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 um like accessed yeah, and then, like, a lot of those indie filmmakers, they are coming off as more likable because they they engage so much on social media and on Facebook or whatever, where they, they'll actually talk to their fans and have a back and forth. And I think that sort of encourages people to get to, to buy into something. Like, I mean, famously, when Snakes on a Plane was being produced, the Internet had such a huge influence on it because people on message boards started mocking how stupid it sounded to have a, a movie, a horror movie with snakes on an airplane and Samuel L. Jackson was going to be fighting them that people started sort of mocking it and the producers took notice and said, people are mocking the ideas for this movie. Let's just take their ideas and put them into the movie and then we'll make this something that they feel they're a part of. And they actually ended up sort of winning over the audience and they turned what could have just been another, like a, like a cat woman failure and turned it into something that actually became sort of like a film of the people and that people still remember as being a, a so bad it's good movie because they feel like they have, they have influence over it. I mean, a lot of those lines from the movie, like, I need to get these motherfucking snakes off this motherfucking plane or whatever, came from the internet. So people felt by and they felt like they helped produce the movie. Well, and I, I really have to say with Snakes on a Plane, one of my favorite things, um, when the website was active, you could actually go on there and have Samuel L. Jackson call somebody. You would put in their phone number and you would put in details and they would get a phone call from Samuel L. Jackson. It was recordings telling, you know, you by your name, to get in your, you know, wannabe sports car or your big ass SUV, go pick up, you know, your name, you know, 
and take them on, you know, whatever the opening date was, to go see me in my new film, Snakes on a Plane. <laughs> like, it was, there was just so much interactivity, it's you know, me, from, in real life. from the producers. And, you know, I mean, like, I, I got the phone call from Samuel L. Jackson, and I, I, you know, then I went and did it to my friends, and, you know, everyone's like, like, that's awesome. Well, I think that's kind of like with, um, like we were saying with Ro- the Rocky Horror Picture Show. It's like you are, a, you're becoming a part of something, and there's interactions and everything like that. And I think people really like that, especially with the internet age, where people don't go out as much. Like people, like even shop like online a lot more. And I think with this kind of new age, it's the like those kind of interactions and are very popular. Like, um, like you look at those let's play things where it's just watching a guy play a video game and make commentaries, but those things get a ton of hits because it's, you feel like you're involved in it. Like you, you like, it's like who hasn't gotten frustrated playing a video game. And it's just a guy like, you know, like you or one of your friends. When I mean, yeah, that's I, the- I remember in high school, I had one friend that, yeah, he didn't play video games, but he, he loved to watch me play. And he's like, you can't play that game unless I'm around to watch it so that I know what's going on in it. <laughs> so it's like watching it like a movie. Pretty yeah, like that's that's the way a lot of people sort of are making friends these days or through things like the Let's Play videos where it's like it used to be just in the day. You used to just sit down with your friend and either do couch co-op or he would play till he died and hand the controller to you and you'd play till you died. And nowadays people just do it through through streaming services and they just watch it that way. Like it is sort of the new way... That we're becoming friends and in that way a lot of people do feel connected to a lot of the up-and-coming horror filmmakers particularly like uh, uh a lot of these guys are, are so good at sort of interacting with the fans i remember even even eli roth who has his you know tons of fame or whatever he interacts really well with people on twitter because when green inferno was coming out whatever it was two years ago even though he had made it years before he was interacting every hour with people on twitter uh, and and that's something that really helps people feel the buy-in. Pretty much, yeah. I know on Reddit they've got those um, AMAs, the um, Ask Me Anything uh, things. Those are always really popular because you'll get like um, people ask people about like movies they're in, or just like um, even like scientists and stuff. They'll ask them like personally, like about their research and things like that. And it, they're a lot of fun to engage in. Like even just like reading the questions afterwards, it's like you kind of even if it's somebody you knew you've kind of heard of, or just somebody or a thing you've heard of, it really makes it more personal. It's really a lot of fun to engage in. Yeah, really it transitions them from being just a personality or just being like a finely crafted persona in, in public to being an actual person. And that's that's what a lot of people struggle with in in Hollywood. And, and that's why a lot of people feel it's easy to sort of mock someone's movies or to not go see them or to say this is going to be so bad or whatever, to do a bunch of one-liners against them online is because they don't feel connected to them. So yeah, doing those little AMAs or having that interaction can really help win people over. Like there are certain people that are big stars but feel like human beings. Like Patton Oswalt had, you know, all a big public tragedy when his wife died last year. So a lot of people feel like personally sorry for him and, you know, send him letters and send him things to his house and everything because they feel attached to him. And same thing with like Liam Neeson. Like he's someone that even though he's a big star, people sort of feel a kinship with. Uh, because of sort of like his public foibles or whatever and and that more so than someone who's become a joke like a like a david hasselhoff has just become a joke and you can never really take him seriously again and so you sort of see the the two sides of it you know you can squander your success and your and your celebrity like Lindsay lohan has done or like paris hilton has done or different people or you can really cultivate it 
and turn it into something positive for you like some of these other people have done. So yeah, it really has a big difference on whether or not people are not just going to take you seriously, but give you slack when maybe you screw up. I mean, at this point, people love Ryan Reynolds and Robert Downey Jr. so much that they'll give them slack if they screw up. Whereas just 10 years ago, we were you know crucifying Ryan Reynolds every time he was in a movie because he seemed like a franchise killer. He seemed like someone that you just couldn't rely on to deliver a good movie. And now he's just he's box office gold. Pretty much, yeah. That's a, that's a good point. So, anything else you want to say about uh, movies that are so good that they're bad? Um, I just want to throw a few more out there for any listeners who would still be with us. Man, we've been going on for a long time. But a few more movies that a lot of people missed out on. If you want some good so bad, they're, they're good movies. Freaked from 1993 is a Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves movie. Uh, about a bunch of like uh, Randy Quaid is sort of a wacky mad scientist who's turning using a contraption to turn people into mutants and freaks, and it's got really good people in it like Brooke Shields, Morgan Fairchild, William Sadler, but it also has like Bobcat Goldthwait and Mr. T, um, and really just amazing practical effects on the freaks, and has a kick-ass punk rock soundtrack and a really weird art style. So that's something that's it's high energy and it's weird and it's visually interesting and it has you know sort of a a funny tongue-in-cheek story about sort of a uh, a really successful rich celebrity who you know doesn't give a shit about socialist issues, but his you know girlfriend is nagging him to get more involved, and then suddenly he gets you know wrapped up into something and 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 has to actually turn from a selfish Southern California dude bro into maybe a decent person. So that one's a fun one for people to watch. Ricky O, the story of Ricky. I don't even know if I can call this one a so bad as good movie. Because anyone that knows this movie loves it. Um, I really haven't heard anyone say anything bad about Riccio, but it's an adapt it's an adaptation of like a brutal manga, very similar to Fist of the North Star for any anime fans out there. But it's uh it's just a beyond gory, gory film with really bad special effects. Like they just didn't have the budget or the skill to deliver on the special effects that they needed to show the gore. So they still just show the gore anyway. There's just obvious mannequin heads and like mannequin arms being used, covered in thick red blood. There's people like pulling each other's intestines out and just everything just looks really fake, but it also looks so brutal that you just can't look away. So that's a fun one. I, I really can't think of another movie like Riccio because it's sort of part kung fu movie, part hardcore slasher flick, um, just sort of like put into each other. So. Uh, that's one I want to recommend everybody. And then Hell Comes to Frogtown with Rowdy Roddy Piper. Uh, one of the best post-apocalyptic, weird, quirky movies ever made. Basically, after the a nuclear apocalypse has left the planet in ruins, half the population are mutants, but the other half are sterile. So since the men are basically useless, women have taken over the planet and run it via martial law. So naturally, they have like bright pink vehicles with guns on top. Um, Roddy Piper plays a guy named Sam Hell, who's like the last fertile man on the planet. So the women capture him and try to take him to their base so that they can use him to repopulate the earth. But because he's their prisoner, they put like explosive underwear on him. So if he tried to run, his manhood would get obliterated. So yeah, on their journey, they end up getting captured by mutant frog looking guys. The leader of which instead of a penis has three snakes. And that's just one of the many weird decisions in this movie. So I love that one. Um, but yeah, those are those are probably three movies I'd recommend to anybody. Hell Comes to Frogtown, The Story of Ricky, and Freaked. If you see those and you love those, then man, you're a kindred spirit. 
I mean, how can you ever go wrong with anything that's got Rowdy Roddy Piper in it? I agree. That just sounds amazing. Yeah, so, um, yeah, before we go, um, do you want to, just for those who didn't listen to the last time you were here, we were talking about the kaiju films, but um, just want to talk about your website a little bit, Cinemania? Yeah, so uh, cinemania.co is the website. Um, Working on a lot of fun things. We have forums now. We have a bunch of articles up, probably about a year's worth, two years worth of articles. I try to write a lot of evergreen content, so you don't have to worry about the stuff being timely. We're really not a news site. We're really not a review site. We basically just want to share bad movies with people. We want to be that friend that you had when you were a teenager that said, hey, man, you probably haven't seen this yet, and just recommends those bad movies. So that's really more what it's about. So if you're someone that likes So Bad It's Good Movies, but you found that prediction algorithms and recommendation engines on things like Amazon and IMDb and Netflix are always failing you and recommending bad stuff, come check out the site, read some articles. We do some silly stuff. We do some serious stuff, but ultimately we're just there to have a good time and recommend bad movies. So hopefully some people will find something that they either didn't see before or that they've seen and just couldn't remember. Cause I found a lot of that. I found a lot of people saying, Oh my God, I saw that when I was 10 years old and I couldn't remember the name of it. Thank God that you talked about it. So that's something that we try to do. And, and with zero influence from movie companies, by the way, we don't like to recommend things based on people giving us things. So we recommend just what we're interested in fully regardless of what anyone, you know, tries to promote. You're doing God's work. Absolutely. So until next time, friends, be brave, be alive, and be back for more. I don't want to